Hi, before I get to my next guest, Charlie Meacham, I want to welcome another new sponsor to the show, Finn Cycle. It's time to rethink golf. The game is at a tipping point. The young people we need in the game don't have four and a half hours to spend out on the course. Pairing Finn Cycles with a desire to play ready golf can cut playing time in half because all golfers go directly to their own golf ball. Plus, it's tons of fun. Go online to finscooters.com and click on Find a Finn for a course that has them near you. I also want to give another shout-out to our friends over at the McLemore. The McLemore Mountaintop community rests atop the highlands of Lookout Mountain, Georgia, overlooking historic McLemore Cove and Pigeon Mountain. Surrounded on all sides by state and national parks, historic land districts, and private land trusts. The resort features an 18-hole Reese Jones and Bill Bergen championship course, a gated residential community, and a planned clubhouse opening in the fall of 2020, plus planned hotel and conference center. The dramatic 18-hole course is made up of a variety of golf experiences, combining canyon holes, highland holes, cliff edge holes that are well-suited for the beginning golfer as well as the senior player. McLemore also offers a wonderful six-hole short course called the Karen. Designed by Bill Bergen, the Karen provides players with a short warm-up or cool-down before or after a round, or a relaxing way to improve one's game with family and friends. McLemore is located a short driving distance from Atlanta, Nashville, Knoxville, Birmingham, and Huntsville, and just 35 minutes from downtown Chattanooga, voted number one best town in America two years in a row by Outside Magazine. While a private course, McLemore offers stay-and-play packages for guests in club-managed properties, as well as a number of membership opportunities, including social memberships, non-resident memberships, and corporate memberships as well. For more information, please visit McLemore online at themclemore.com or give them a call at 800 329 All right, now back with me here on Next on the Tee is Charlie Meacham. Folks, Charlie was uh, on the show just a couple of weeks ago, and he was so fascinating. I had to get him back on the show as quickly as I could. Let me remind you about his background. He's from Nelsonville, Ohio, which is a little southeast of Columbus. He graduated from Miami University of Ohio with his undergraduate degree and from Yale Law School. Charlie served three years in the Army. He was the chairman and CEO of Taft Broadcasting Company, which later became the Great American Broadcasting Company. In October of 1990, he became the commissioner of the LPGA. He's been a business advisor to several of golf's greatest legends like Jack Nicklaus, Arnold Palmer, Julie Inkster, Annika Sorenstam, and Dottie Pepper. 2000, he was named a Great Living Cincinnatian, the highest honor awarded by the city of Cincinnati. He's written a couple of fantastic books. First, Total Anecdotal, a fun and unique guide to help you become a better speaker and writer. And Who's That with Charlie, which is so fascinating that once you pick it up, you're not going to be able to put it down. He's got his own podcast called 15 Minutes with Charlie. And I'm honored he's back with me again tonight here on Next on the T. Hey, Charlie, thanks for joining me again. You know, if I had any brains, I'd uh, say thank you and hang up. I don't know how I could do any better. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Charlie, I want to start off our time tonight by going back to your childhood in Nelsonville. You grew up as a kid. You you played baseball, basketball, football. You ran track. And I read that you almost drowned playing football. How did that happen? Well, first of all, in a town as small as Nelsonville, uh, you could play any you wanted to. It didn't matter whether you were any good or not uh, because there weren't that many kids. So if you wanted to play, you played. The football story, though, is is absolutely uh, remarkable. 
I was playing in a game against a, a, a an opposing team called Pomeroy, Ohio, P-O-M-E-R-O-Y. And it, we had torrential rains throughout the game. And I wasn't very big, but I could, I could block pretty well. So I was the blocking back for, we had a really great tailback. And on this one play, I uh, came around and I, I did a, 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 a side body block and knocked down this guy who's about six, six, big tall guy. In fact, he was, he was the center on their basketball team and he fell right on my head and it pushed my head down to this puddle of water, which is probably by that time a couple inches deep. And I remember thinking, am I going to drown on a football field? But happily, <laughs> he moved his legs so I could get loose, and I did. <laughs> Charlie, your family owned a shoe store, your grandfather, your father, uncle. And you know, yeah. based on that, I'm surprised you weren't CEO of FootJoy at some point. But talk about Meacham. <laughs> No, I never had any interest in in following in in the in the in family business. I sort of always had a dream of being a lawyer. My dad actually wanted me to to be a lawyer, so uh, I I moved in that direction. Charlie, I got to ask you, and obviously you graduated from Yale Law School, became a lawyer. Harder to pass the bar exam or harder to, be, to become uh, LPGA or take over as uh, commissioner of the LPGA? Passing the bar exam was the scariest, toughest thing I ever did. Uh, I, I, was a, I was a wreck for, uh, for weeks coming up to the time of the bar exam. It lasted in those days. It lasted three days, like six or seven hours a day. And you know, I just got wow. out of my third year of law school. I was exhausted anyway, so uh, I was convinced that I wouldn't, I wouldn't pass, and that made me even more nervous. But anyway, make a long story short, I did. But that was by far the most challenging thing I've ever had to do. And then you go on to to join a very prestigious law firm that. Uh was sort of headed up by Robert Taft Jr., who would go on to be Senator Taft, following in the footsteps of his father and his grandfather, who just happened to be Correct. President William Howard Taft. What Correct. was it like coming out of law school and joining a, a law firm like that? A lot of pressure, but a lot of gratitude, because as you know, somebody once said, uh, if you're gonna if you're gonna go for something, go for it. Don't uh, don't take uh, second or third third fiddle. So uh, when I had the opportunity to join that firm, which was by far the most prestigious firm, and in those days, this is, we're talking now 1955, there were only 20 lawyers in that firm. Now there are seven or 800. So I felt privileged. I felt very challenged and I never looked back. It, it was a, a wonderful turning point in uh, in my career. And as a new kid on the block, I imagine you were put in charge of a case that no one had been able to close, a case where the U.S. government was trying to claim money from one of the firm's clients who owed actually money back to a company in Germany that you had yep. to go take care of. Tell that story. This this proves that luck is better than brains uh, every time. The... the uh, 
my firm uh, was sued by an organization called the Alien Property Custodian, which in World War II was set up to claim assets that were owed by German companies to the United States. So our company was told that we had to cough up a certain amount of money because the Germans had owed that to us and needed to be paid. So I went over there with my wife, and and they were we were treated very well uh, because this was about nineteen oh fifty seven, I guess fifty eight, and uh, we were treated well because they didn't have any interest in in uh, doing anything other than just helping us. So uh, I I was left alone one day. In a in a room where all of the, the documents that they had survived the bombing, many of their documents had been burned up in the bombings. But I was going through page by page this uh, document, and it was sort of a uh, a ledger. And I couldn't speak German, but I had a German interpreter with me, and I I saw this this entry. On, on the ledger that looked very much to me as though the German company had, had written off the, uh, the, the amount owed by my client. So I said to the uh, interpreter, I said, this looks like a, a write off to me, like they wrote off the money that, that we owed them. He said, that's exactly what it is. So I talked to the, the executives for the, the uh, German company and I said, why did you do this? And they said, well, we figured that after the war, there would, nobody was going to pay anything to anybody. So we just thought it was a worthless investment. So we just wrote it off. So I said, would you be, be willing to sign an affidavit in which you state as a company that my company, my client named Baldwin Lima Hamilton, never owed you or at the end of the war owed you no money. And they said, sure, because that was right. So I got that affidavit, sent it back. Of course, my boss and my client were thrilled, and uh, we got out of the case and didn't pay a dime. But there's a case where when I was going through those uh, those documents, uh, first of all, we were lucky to even have that document left, not having destroyed. And secondly, for me to be able to find it and and have uh, the ability to pull it up and and use it, I guarantee you, more luck than brains, but it worked. <laughs> <laughs> and Charlie, as as your uh, career started to you know com- completely take off, you you end up becoming friends with Paul Brown, legendary head coach of the Cleveland Browns, and who would become the original owner of the Cincinnati Bengals. Talk about your relationship with him, and then how you had to try to convince him to become the owner of the uh, Cincinnati Bengals. One day, my uh, senior partner in my law firm called me into his office, and he said, uh, Charles, my son, John, wants to be uh, wants to go for an NFL franchise because they had, in, they had indicated Pete Rozelle was the commissioner then, and Rozelle had indicated that there was going to be a franchise awarded. And uh, he said, we called Roselle, and we said, uh, 
we want to we want to go after this. What do we do? And Roselle said, what you do is you go sign Paul Brown to come back to Cincinnati because whoever gets Paul Brown gets the next franchise. And his reasoning behind that was that Paul was by far, and I think generally acknowledged, the one person in the United States in the football world who could build a franchise from the ground up, not just coach, but build the franchise. So I, uh, of course, I admired Paul Brown. I was overwhelmed with the chance to uh, to meet him. And so a couple of us uh, went out to La Jolla, California, where he was sitting. He'd been fired by the Browns. And uh, I used to kid him. I said, you were sitting out in La Jolla like a deposed South American dictator because he was getting a couple <laughs> hundred grand a year. Uh, but he wanted desperately to get into football, back into football. So I uh, negotiated with him for two or three days, and uh, we we made a deal. It was not an easy deal to make, but it was a good deal. Uh, he said, look, uh, I can only afford to buy 20% of the stock, but I insist upon control of the franchise because I, I will never allow what happened to me in Cleveland to happen again. So I talked to my clients and we worked out an arrangement, which I suggested to them, which was called a voting trust. In a voting trust, all the shareholders put their their voting shares in a trust and then you appoint a trustee. And we appointed Paul Brown as a trustee. So he only owned 20% outright, but he voted 100%. And that that trust lasted for many, many, many years. So he came back to Cincinnati and, of course, built the Bengals and not doing well the last few years, but we had a couple of great years under Paul, went to the Super Bowl twice and hadn't been for Joe Montana and the, and the Niners. We probably would have won both times. But <laughs> the story that I remember most is the night that we completed the negotiations, Paul invited me and a couple of the other guys up to his uh, home for dinner. And his home sat on one of those high La Jolla mountains looking out into the Pacific Ocean. It was about sun sundown when we sat down and we had a drink and we're both sitting alone on this big couch looking out as the sun dipped into the Pacific Ocean. And I said, Paul, I know you feel good about things, but I've got to be honest with you. We can fire you any time we want. And he stiffened. and He looked, what are you talking about? I said, Paul, there's a clause in the contract that we signed with you that says we can fire you at any time without cause if you are determined to be physically or mentally incapacitated. And I said, anyone who would leave this scene and go back to Cincinnati, Ohio to coach football is mentally incapacitated. <laughs> we had a big laugh about that. And then I became the lawyer for the Bengals and uh, spent a few years uh, in, in that role before uh, Tap Broadcasting summoned me. And so it was a great time. Paul was an incredible character. I admired him. I loved him. And uh, he's not given the credit that he deserves. For example, Belichick coached under him at the Browns, and Belichick has been quoted as, 
as saying that Brown was the greatest coach that he'd ever seen. So uh, it's good. I'm, I'm happy to give a little, have a little opportunity to talk about Paul because he was fantastic. He also got to play a little golf with him, and and I read he was a uh, a stickler for the rules, like you know, no two off the oh. first tee, no rolling the ball in the fairway. Talk about playing was, golf with him. He was terrible. We, uh, I mean, he was a good golfer. I wasn't, but he invited me to play with him at uh, in California at La Costa, and in those days, the uh, the on the first tee, the First house, in the uh, as you went down the first tee, belonged to the then head of the Teamsters Union of the United States. Pretty tough company, so I was a little nervous, and I hit the ball right over into this guy's lawn. So Paul, he had sort of a he never raised his voice, sort of a soft voice, and I heard him saying, "You're hitting three. And I remember thinking, wait a minute, this is a fun game. I'm, you're hitting three. So I hit three, and I hit ball down the middle of the fairway, and it went right into a divot. And, of course, the way I play with my pals, you just roll that out. But I was pretty intimidated by what he did to me on the after the drive. And I said, hey, Paul, can I lift, can I just roll this out of the divot? And he said, is there water in it? <laughs> Meaning... <laughs> If it was casual water in the divot, I I could roll out. Otherwise, I couldn't. So uh, we played a long, lot of golf together, and he was a stickler for the rules, which was good. Uh, and uh, I don't know that I ever beat him <laughs> either. So. <laughs> well, tell the story about the time he took a 12 on the first hole. Oh, this is incredible. We were playing in Muirfield Village in Columbus, Ohio, Nicholas's course. And uh, I had a foursome that these four guys and the four wives went to uh, Muirfield Village every summer around the 4th of July. And uh, it was quite a foursome, by the way. Paul and Neil Armstrong, the astronaut, and a man named George Rivashal, who was the inventor of Benadryl. So uh, I was the only one in the group nobody ever heard of. So we had a good time, though, and uh, on the first hole, this one day, it rained a little. We had to wait a little for our tee-off time, and uh, Paul hit his second shot into a bunker on the right side of number one fair, uh, number one uh, green. I honestly doubt if Paul had been in a, in a bunker for 20 years, but he was in this one. So he scuffed it out. It went across the green into the next the bunker on the other side. Well, this happened until he got close enough to putt out for a 12. Well, we walked to the second tee. We all kind of looked at one another. We didn't know what to say. Nobody, honest to God, Chris, nobody said a word until the sixth tee because we didn't know what to say. And Paul wasn't saying anything. So finally, on the 60, he turned to us and sort of smiled. And he said, I think that may be the most embarrassing thing that ever happened to me in my life. <laughs> <laughs> and he probably had a, never had another 12 after that. 
It's, it's interesting you mentioned like that foursome because uh, as I was reading one of the other stories, uh, there was a, uh, a round where uh, Neil Armstrong tops it off the first tee, hacks it, you know, up the fairway or tries to, you know, through the rough and, and it hacked it several times. And, and most of us at some point would have probably given up and just picked up. But that's not who Neil Armstrong was. He was going to play it out regardless if he was going to take a four or he was going to take a 20. Talk about playing he, with Neil. He never, ever picked up. Neil was not a good golfer, but he was an engineer, and he figured out, by God, there's got to be a way to hit that ball. And uh, we were both about 18 handicaps, and we loved playing together, and we'd occasionally have a, a decent round. But this one day at Mirfield, I think it was number 17, in those days had a uh, a bunker, a big bunker, running the entire length of the fairway, almost to the green. Well, he hit over into, into that bunker, and we go over, and Neil takes three or four shots, advances the ball probably 10 yards, hits it again 10 more yards, on and on. So finally, after about the fifth swipe, Paul Brown looks in stage whisper again, says, is this the man that went to the moon? <laughs> <laughs> and we we all broke up, and, but Neil, he kept going. I think he took a 13 or a 14 on that hole, but he said, "By God, I'm gonna I'm gonna play by the rules," and he did. <laughs> Charlie, I think like last I mentioned to you last time, I'm a, I'm a big space nut, and uh, we're a few weeks shy of the 51st anniversary of the Apollo right. 11 mission, and right. there's been a right. been a lot of stories that we've heard, at least I've heard over the years, about them seeing strange things up there, and you know different controversies about the Apollo 11 mission and, and Buzz Aldrin yeah. wanting to be the first guy out and, and sort of all that sort of stuff. Did Neil ever talk about that? He, he never really talked about the moon as such. If you ask him a question, he would answer it. But he, uh, this sounds silly to say, he never considered it that big a deal. And I said to him one time, Neil, come on. You were the first man on the moon. There'll never be another. He said, look, there were a thousand people that got me there, and uh, I'm not going to claim credit. All I did was follow what they told me to do. Well, obviously, I felt that was an overstatement, but he genuinely believed it. The other thing I would say is that you can you can debunk all of these conspiracy theories. They're all but just nonsense. I suspect. I mean, it's human nature that Buzz would have liked to have been the first man. Who wouldn't have? So I, I can't say that that's not true. But a lot of the things that were said, the conspiracies, the, the most ridiculous, of course, being that it was all done on a soundstage in Vegas. Uh, the, Neil was so honest. It was amazing. And he just, as he said, I just did what they told me. He, I'll tell you one funny story. They had a great, he had a great uh, human sense, sense of humor. And, uh, a friend of mine took him out on a boat in Florida to deep sea fish, and I was not there, but my friend told me the story that the captain of the boat was just was just ecstatic over the thought that Neil Armstrong would be on his boat that day. So they get on the boat, and they start out in the ocean. The captain says, Mr. Armstrong, I'm so flattered to have you uh, on the boat, but, you know, the thing I've never understood about your 
moon mission was, how did you navigate? How did you find your way there? And Neil smiled and said, well, wasn't too hard. We could just, we could see it right out the side window. <laughs> so he was that way. He, he never, never uh, made the deal out of it that it really was. And he retired relatively shortly after the Apollo 11 mission. I, I read he retired in 1971, the mission being in 69. And I always imagined it was because, you know, what else was he ever going to do that was going to top walking on the moon? Was that why? I, I think you got that exactly right. I think you got it. He had, he had done it. He got back safely. Uh, he didn't want to, you know, as you say, what's next? So I think you're right. And I also read the story that he took you down to Cape Canaveral to watch the night launch of the Apollo <laughs> 17, which was our last mission, but forgot his wallet and his ID. Oh. Talk about forcing him to be recognized. This was a riot. A friend of mine and I, he invited us to go to the first night moon launch. So we met him. We rendezvoused in Tampa. We were all coming from somewhere else. And we drove across the peninsula to uh, Cape Canaveral. And Neil was driving. We get about 20 miles, just about the first checkpoint, because there were a dozen checkpoints you had to go through. And Neil kind of looks down and pats his pipe. Oh, my God. He said, I, I forgot my wallet. I forgot my identification. So my friend and I look at one another, and we both are thinking the same thing. We're going to come to the first checkpoint, and the guard's going to say, who are you? He's going to say, I'm Neil Armstrong. And they're, they're going to say, yeah, and I'm George Washington. Get out of here. <laughs> so we, there was nothing we could do. We were so close. So we get to the first checkpoint, and the uh, Neil rolls down the window. And before he could say anything, the guard said, wow, aren't you Neil Armstrong? And my pal said, yes, yes, it's Neil Armstrong. <laughs> Don't ask for anything ID. So from then on, we were. We were in, uh, we were cool. <laughs> he was that way, though. He, I don't know. It, it, you could never, you could never discount his brilliance. But it was a little bit maybe like Einstein. I remember one time when, when uh, the first time I ever saw him play poker, he sat down around the table, six or eight of us. Everybody brings their money out and, and puts it down very neatly. He reached in his pocket and came out with what you might have thought was a handful of cabbage. Just all his dollars, all his bills, all messed up uh, from hundreds to ones and on and on. So he uh, he had that side to him. But when it, when it counted, don't ever bet against him. Charlie, just a couple more before I let you go. And, yeah. And with everyone that you've talked about and hanging out with and being around, the last time you talked about Mr. Palmer and obviously Mr. Yeah. Nicholas and Armstrong and Paul Brown, Tommy Thayer from Kiss, I yeah. saw in one of your one of your stories. Well, that's a that's a big uh, big swing from those guys. How do you know Tommy Thayer from Kiss? Well, Tommy Thayer is a member of the golf club down in La Quinta, California to which I belong. And I got to know him because he did several uh, appearances to benefit a scholarship fund that we set up to honor Arnold Palmer. 
Arnold Palmer uh, College scholarships. So I got to know Tommy, and the, the, the better I got to know him, the better I liked him. He's just a wonderful guy. It's interesting. He comes from a military family. His father was a, a general during World War II. His mother was a classical cellist. Uh, Tommy has a great appreciation of, of, of uh, music, has two brothers. Uh, he's just a wonderful, wonderful guy. And so I have a little company that does uh, uh, some uh, programming, and he's uh, a partner of ours, and we're doing a couple of shows together. But I can't say enough for Tommy Thayer as a person and as a creative artist. But you're right. It's strange bedfellows. <laughs> Charlie, speaking of, of Mr. Palmer, and obviously you spent many years as a, a, a consultant, a friend, a confidant with Mr. Palmer. Does it seem like it, to me it doesn't, but does, is it co- coincidental at all that you think that NBC waited until uh, Mr. Palmer passed away before they decided to pick up the Golf Channel and move it to Connecticut? I doubt if that had any connection. Uh, there were a lot of other issues there, some of which I'm privy to, some of which I'm not. But I think that uh, Arnie's let's let let me back up a little bit. Had Arnie still been alive, it probably would have been a tougher decision. And you may be right; it may not have been a decision that was made at all. But I honestly do not believe that there was a causal connection between. Arnie's not being in Florida and the Gulf Channel moving. Well, Charlie, before I let you go, again, you've written two wonderful books, and and Who's That with Charlie is a is a book that you just can't put down. As soon as you start to read it, I mean, it's one fantastic story, like you've shared. You. you know, the two times Thank you've been on this show, but it's 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 wonderful. Talk about right. how people can get a copy of either one of your books, and then stay up to date with what you're doing. Well, I think. I think either book or both books are still available on Amazon. I presume Barnes and Noble. Um, and I have a, uh, a website, just Charlie Meacham. And of course, podcasts I've done 15 minutes with Charlie. So there are a variety of ways. If you just Google Charlie Meacham or possibly Charles Meacham, you can come up with all uh, the handles that, uh, that you need. So, uh, I'm flattered that you, uh, You've had me on your show. I've enjoyed it immensely, and uh, I, I enjoy visiting with you anytime. Well, Charlie, I can't thank you enough. You're endlessly fascinating, and I'm sure there's still lots more stories to, to share and talk about. So I hope we get the privilege of having you back on the show again soon. You give me a, a ring, and we'll uh, we'll set it up, because I, I love the way you prepare, the way you uh, uh come up with the stories that, of course, I love to to recount again. And so uh, I'm yours at any time. (laughs) Ah, Thank you very much for that, Charlie. You're fantastic, my friend. Take care, stay safe, and we'll catch up soon. You bet. Good work, pal. Bye-bye. Thank you, Charlie. See ya. That's a great Charlie Meacham. And, folks, I promise you, you know, when you pick up that book, um, it's just one wonderful story after another. Who's that with Charlie? Um, I, you know, the, the number of people that he has been in and around, you know, when, when you think about it is, is, I mean, it's, it's amazing. I mean, how do you, how do you top that? Right. I mean, it's just one, 
one legend after another that he got to spend time with and then recanting the stories. It, it's fantastic. It's a great book. I highly recommend it. All right, folks, it's time for me to put a bow on this episode of Next on the T. My sincere thanks go out again to Tom Patrick, Hal Sutton, and Charlie Meacham for joining me tonight. Please check out our website, nextonthetea.net. On there, you'll be able to keep up to date with what our guest schedule looks like. Plus, you'll be able to stream or download many of our archive episodes. And we also link back to our page over on podcast.co, and that's .co. So podcast.co, we've got all of our archive episodes there. You can also stream this show as a podcast over on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify iHeartRadio, Audio Boom, Player.fm. We are all over the net. So, folks, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your life to, to come back and be a part of the show and keep us a part of your golfing content. Until next week, hit them straight, my friends.